I'm George Tekmachev. Thanks for joining us again for the Easton Podcast. My very special guest today is Richard Tone, archer, bow hunter, master coach, archery businessman, inventor, innovator, renaissance man of our sport, my coach for the last 25 years, coach of Jay Bars, the 1988 Olympic gold medalist, and many other successful shooters. Dick, I, I can't tell you how happy I'm to have you. Well, George, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. And we here is the Eastern Archery Center in Salt Lake City, where right now you are coaching the uh, couple of members of the Canadian women's team. That's correct. They, <clears throat> we had them come down here to do a little tuning and coaching and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, they've got a long uh, session ahead. They're headed to provincial national, the provincial championship, after which they've got to go to the. Uh, World Cup in Colombia. Right. Go ahead into Medellin. And then that's a warm-up for the... The Rio test event. Yeah. At the Sambodromo, I gather. I'm sure that's where it's at. Well, that's going to be a great opportunity. You know, um, I think what we need to do is back up a little bit and just get a general introduction of who Dick Tone is for those people out there. There's probably a few who don't know what you've done in our sport. And uh, I'd like to start at the start. Let's hmm. go back to the 1960s and talk about Dick Tone, the archer. Well, let's see. I kind of started in the sport when I was um, around five. Uh, there was a, a cousin of mine that had one of those little toy sets that hung on the back of the door, and every time you hit the target, it made a little bell ring, and I thought that was cool. And that's how it started. And uh, shortly after that, and that was in Minnesota, uh, shortly after that, we moved to Arizona, and all the way down, all we talked about was cowboys and Indians. And I kind of always wanted to be the Indian. Because they had the bow. <laughs> That's right. And there was, uh, there was an old man down the street from the house we were renting that uh, took an orange crate and split it and made arrows for us and used the, the leaves of an oleander bush to make the, the feathers or the veins, if you will, and then took an oleander branch and made a bow and... That's what I shot to start out with, and it was like, uh, you know, I, I tore up all the cactus in the whole neighborhood. I mean, that's just the way it was, you know? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, moving forward a little bit. Right. Um, I actually, you know, kept going at it, and then I, um, I joined my first club in, at age nine. It was called the Sun Valley Bowhunters in Arizona, and that was strictly a field course. And we had people show up to do, you know, different demos and things, people like Howard Hill and stuff like that. Famous, famous people. Right. And one of the members of that club was a guy named Al Henderson. The renowned American coach from the uh, 1980, what would have been our 1980 team, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was a 76 coach, yeah. 76 coach, right. Okay. And Judy uh, Adams is coach. Judy Adams coach. That's, that's for sure. Uh, and many, many more. He wrote a nice book, and it's it's yeah. well done. Great archery book. I still have a copy of it, and uh, I think a lot of people could learn from it today, even though it was written 30-something 30, 30 years ago. Right. One of those times, and my folks would take me out to this course on Sunday mornings and leave me off and, you know, pick me up at dark. And I got there one time, and I had a, like a 35-pound uh, Ben Pearson's uh, hickory uh, static recurve bow and I shot a few practice arrows and my string broke so I'm going to be there all day without even being able to shoot well this nice man I found out later Al Henderson came and got me a string and so I could shoot the rest of the day and 
that that's kind of a pre-runner to when I actually moved, we actually moved to Canada. My dad was with State Farm and uh, we moved up there um, about 1958. And uh, there was a big ravine in front of our house and my neighbor and I would take our bows and go into the ravine every night. And of course, all summer long, that's all we did was shoot arrows down in the ravine. Roving. Yes. You know, you know I, did, I had no clue what a target archery thing was. And so we came out of the ravine one day, and some guy drove by and said, Hey, guys, you got bows and arrows. We have a target range over here in a little club. Do you want to come over here and try this out? I thought, that sounds like fun. So we did. We, I went over there, and he didn't. I went over there, and they had all these great big targets. And they're all at the same distance. You stand in one spot. I mean, how tough can this be? Let's just shoot him, you know? And that was kind of my introduction to target archery. So kind of roundabout right now is, you know, I'm working with the Canadian national team. And part of it is that's where I started target archery. Things came full circle in a way. Exactly. Well, you also had some pretty serious achievements uh, in the 1960s as shooting in Canada. Right, right. I ended up, well, I won a lot of tournaments up there. Uh, I think, you know, I was up there for about six years shooting target archery, and I I don't ever remember coming second but once. And then I ended up winning the Canadian Nationals. The last year I was there in 1964, uh, along with the young lady that I was actually working with at the time, a lady named Joan McDonald, actually it was Joan Galley back then, who has been the Canadian coach for ever. And a world championship competitor. Oh yeah, very, very good shooter. So that was kind of a fun deal. So I'd say that's an understatement. So you've had an impact uh, here in the United States, even more than in Canada, I think, as a coach. And um, let's jump ahead a little bit. How did you get started? as a coach well i always you know seemed like in the bat in the old days i mean whenever you had a, a fairly decent shooter everybody wanted to know how you were doing it right and you know for a long time it was like nobody wanted to say anything um kind of keep the secrets as right it but i didn't mind helping people out i figured you know if you're gonna beat them you might as well try and beat the best so uh all along i always was one to help people out and uh, when I got into the archery business uh, in a pro shop type setting, it became very easy because you had a lot of people coming in wanting to learn how to shoot. And you ended up working with Al Henderson back then? I actually worked for Al Henderson, uh, you know, for um, three or four years and uh, ran some classes and stuff like that. Surprising but, number of uh, significant people in our sport had some connection to Al's pro shop back then. Yeah, that was, it was a major pro shop. Kirsty Kaiser? And, oh, yeah. Joe Johnson. Mm -hmm. Major pro shop in the Phoenix area and, uh, you know, one of the largest archery dealers in the Southwest. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was very easy from that point on to just continue on coaching. So, Besides the coaching, of course, you've been an archery businessman and you started uh, with your partners, the Cavalier Equipment Company back in the uh, 1970s, I think it was. Actually, right? we, yeah, we started the company, you know, right around 1975, 76, something like that. And uh, it was a friend of mine, or you end up being a partner, a guy named Jimmy Haynes. And he had the machine shop up in Illinois and would make all the stuff. And, you know, I would just coming up with the ideas and we'd just make it. So things like the Master Plunger. We did, uh, you know, the original first thing we came out was with the T300 Arrow Rest. 
And I figured that the you know product life on that was maybe 10 years. There's still people using them today. But they're still selling them. <laughs> they're still on the market. So, and it still works, you know. Really well, as a matter of fact. It was a, the, one of the original self-springing springy rests. Correct. Correct. It was a biased wire setup, and it, it still works. And uh, we did, uh, you know, then a cushion plunger, which was, you know, I mean, very well received by the target market. And then we followed that with a finger tab. The master tab, the well, yeah, elite the, tab. Elite tab. Yep. It, it had a metal plate and a, and a uh, ledge that adjusted, and several things that were never on the market before. Yeah, that was an innovation, and now everybody makes one like that. But back then, that mm-hmm. was the and and still, I would argue, one of the best designs. It's simple and yet fully adjustable. There was a time um, when our Cavalier products, um, people shooting our products, held every world and Olympic record which was a pretty good deal at the time. So Yeah, still stands today, some of those records. Uh, some of them will never be broken, yeah. I bet. <laughs> well, I think the indoor 25-meter record, for example, I'm pretty sure that uh, master uh, that the Elite Tab was used for that one. Well, we know it was, used, at, we know it was used for a 1405 Ladies Fida. Yes, so Miss Pox 1405, so that's going to be hard to beat. Pretty hard to beat that, yeah. Yeah, so. I would take some pride in that, too, if I were involved there. I think that... Uh, well, she did shoot X10s too, so I guess that's okay. There you go. It was an Easton product, right? There you go. But yeah, but Dick, the 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 archery business, uh, you you sold that to um, so, sold it to Arizona Archery. Arizona Archery, mm-hmm. and uh, but what a lot of people don't know is you weren't just making archery gear. You did a pretty successful putter. We did we did some putters. We did some other products for other markets uh, that you know other people sold. We you know helped them design and build. We did a, uh, quite a few products for the uh, you know, firehouse business, you know, the 911 calls that come in through the firehouses and stuff like that. We designed some stuff for that business. <laughs> Didn't so, know that. Yeah. I used to visit your factory, you know, when I'd come down to Arizona and stay at your house and, mm-hmm. and practice. And I, I, I was always amazed at how uh, it was a pretty compact operation, but it was able to make such good, you know, just really nice stuff. But of all the things I've done in the sport of archery, probably the most fun was doing exhibitions. Archery exhibitions. Archery exhibitions, you know, and we put together a show. Um, there, was a, um, there was a guy named Dale Marcy who was very good and went around the country for bear archery and several people and did demos. Well, he was a very good friend of mine, and he learned his craft from a guy that he used to throw coins for, a guy named Howard Hill. Okay, and there was a certain spiel and there was a certain way of doing everything. And, you know, when he came to Arizona to visit, he would teach me how to do some of these things, you know, the different tricks and what he was doing, how he was doing. How to make things look good for a crowd, too. Right. And so we put together, you know, a, a show that was, you know, very well received. And we even did the Calgary Stampede one year. Big event. Big event, yes. And um, the guy who was the announcer at the Calgary Stampede, because I had to have an announcer for the whole thing, was a guy named Don Lovo. Ah, that Don Lovo. That Don Lovo. Who eventually became the chairman of judges for World Archery. That's correct. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot of connections. It seemed like, you know, it's a very small world, the archery world, and there's a lot of connections all through it. It's one of the nice things about our sport, though. You know, we go to events. 
we rekindle old friendships. We see people that we haven't seen for a long time. It doesn't seem like that much time's gone by when you get there. No, it doesn't. And, you know, and you know, I've been since I started working with Canadians, uh, going to some of these international events again, and it's it's surprising how many people come up to me. Hey, we haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? And all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of neat. So, in the 1980s, you had a big impact in the United States. Um, as a coach, as a master coach, eventually mm-hmm. uh, coming up through the NAA programs and um, setting the stage for a lot of coaching theory, a lot of uh, still today very effective techniques that have been used. Yeah, I worked with the uh, U.S. teams for about 11 years, and uh, <clears throat> we did, you know, at least two camps every year, um, either in Colorado Springs or Houston or Arizona or somewhere. And this was the time when, you know, the AC arrow was being developed, then the ACE arrow, and then eventually the X-10s, and and a lot of stuff that you designed and you had an impact on. And it was kind of fun to see the changes in equipment, how it affected the shooters, and, you know, how we can make their form work with all this so that they could be effective. So let's loop that back to the 1960s for a second. You had the distinction of having worked for both Doug Easton and Jim Easton. That's correct. And uh, tell us about what that must have been like. Well, it was a kick. Um, I was a, obviously a shooter, and when I moved to California to go to college where my folks lived, um, I, I, got, I went to a state target one time, and I was kind of mentally not prepared. I was trying to decide what to do with my life. And uh, there was a guy named Steve Hayes there shooting. Good friend of uh, Jim Easton. Right. And um, he, he, he was a shooter, and he came up, and he says, what's wrong with you? He says, you're not shooting worth a darn. And I says, well, I said, I borrowed my, my folks' car, and I've got uh, maybe a quarter tank of gas, and it takes me a half a tank to get home. I got 10 bucks in my pocket, and I haven't decided what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. About how old were you at this point? I think I was 20, 19, 20 or maybe so. And uh, Steve says, oh, okay. Well, he went and talked to Doug Easton and said, hey, we need to hire this guy. And so I ended up working uh, for them in the aerostraining department. That would be on Khalifa right. Avenue back then, the, right. uh, the second factory person basically yes yeah and so you know i got to know doug real well and mary and would spend a lot of time i mean i'm just a young kid don't have anything so i spent a lot of time at their house and shot in their front yard a lot and worked in their little workshop a lot there's a hundred yards of uh, lawn in the front of doug easton's house at the time with an oak tree at one end and orange trees at the other and it was great because you could go there and you could shoot 90 meters easily yes walk another 10 meters pick a beautiful Valencia orange off a tree and have lunch while walking back. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. I used to do that myself. <clears throat> yeah, and they were always so nice. It was nice. And, you know, uh, occasionally Doug and I would go dove hunting or whatever. And, of course, as he'd drive along the freeway, he'd point out, well, I own this property and, that, and this one here is we're going to put a factory here and we're going to do it. And that was all kind of interesting. Yeah, because what Doug did was he took his, uh, his money and what he didn't put into the business he put into orange groves, basically. He bought, right. he bought empty land mm-hmm. in the San Fernando Valley, which uh, enabled him to do a lot more later on. But So you had an interesting experience because um, around this time, while you're working in the aero straightening department, by the way, a lot of that was still done by hand, right? I mean, uh, 
They had, it was all done, uh, even the finishing was done by a hand, you know, and, you know, there's a proprietary yeah. system, which we won't discuss. Which we still use today. And it's still used today, and it still works. Yeah. So Basically, a room full of people with ironing boards. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> if you actually come to the factory, that's off limits, of course, the straightening department. Well, but there's the a funny, big picture of everybody with The funny with part, back, back then, we'd have people visit, and Doug Easton would come through and make us take certain things out of there and then sit there pretending like we're straightening arrows as these people came through. <laughs> yeah, because he, you know, to this day, uh, it's something that most people haven't seen outside right. the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, even inside the company, you've got to have the right color badge to get in there. Is that right? That's yeah. what I hear. I don't know. They're always kicking me out, so it must be true. Anyway, <laughs> one, of the, one of the really fascinating stories, though, that I think our listeners might be interested in is how you and Jim Easton built some stuff that's on the moon. Yeah, that was kind of a, uh, kind of a chance thing. I, I was, again, working on Saturday to get a little overtime, you know, buck 75 an hour, you know, you know, doesn't go very far, but, you know, back in the 66, it went further than it does now. But, uh, uh, Jim Easton came through one day on Saturday and he says, does anybody know how to type? And I said, yeah, I can type. And he says, can you run an IBM executive, this and that? And I say, yeah, I can do that. He said, well, come with me. So he took me up to Mary's office, set me down and says, type this proposal up for me. I need two copies and envelopes. I says, okay. So I sat down and did it and got them done and went back and started straightening arrows. And pretty soon Jim came in and there it is. And he took off with it. And of course, typing it up, you're reading it. And what it was is he had a good friend that was a cryogenic engineer. And uh, he had come up with a system to build an insulation shroud for the seismometers that were going to go on the moon in the Apollo Space Project. And it was kind of interesting. So, you know, if, you know, off they went with this proposal. And about a month later, two, three weeks later, whatever, Jim came through and he says, hey, uh, Floyd and I are going to be building this uh the prototype in the evenings because they said they wanted to see a prototype would you like to help us and i said sure so i'd go over there in the evenings and work for three or four hours and help them do this and jim would hand me a 20 dollar bill well that was more than i'm making during the day (laughs) (laughs) so hey i'll be here every night (laughs) and that's exactly what we did we built it and sent it off and i guess it was maybe a month and a half later uh jim came in he says well nasa approved the project and we have to build 12 of them how would you like to head up the project? I says, okay, what does that entail? He says, well, we have to build a, a, a government clean room, and we've got to be inspected, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, and uh, you can pick your hours. I says, hey, I'm in, and I'm going to double your salary from buck seventy-five to three fifty. you know? Think about that, man. That's then you know, how would sure. you like yeah, to have You're your 20 debt? years old, you're making serious money. So, I mean, relatively. Serious money for me. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's how it kind of got started. We built 12 of them, sent them off to NASA, and um, eventually they ended up going on the first uh, Apollo mission Apollo to 11, the moon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and subsequent ones as well. Right, and uh, deployed on the moon. Yeah. The remarkable thing about this was uh, you had to keep a one-degree temperature difference mm-hmm. from one side of this thing to another in a place where you have... 400 degrees difference from sunlight to dark. Right. Plus, you only get one watt of energy to do it. Pretty so, amazing project. So, I mean, that was a pretty good cryogenic engineer that came up with that. You so. ended up getting drafted and going to Vietnam later? I did. Actually, I got drafted, uh, ended up um, in the Army, and um, I was being sent to Vietnam. And uh, got a, the, the day after I got my orders, I got a call from Jim Easton, and he says, hey, 
He says, we need you to come to California and build more of these units. The, uh, you know, the NASA was doing testing on a, in a vacuum chamber, and they had an implosion and blew up four of them. Ooh. And I go, so, so they well, we have a, I says, we have a problem. <laughs> I says, I'm supposed to go to Vietnam you know, in three days. And he says, well, let me see what I can do. And I guess he got a hold of whoever he knew in California, and they called up, and this warrant officer came in the next morning with this big stack of orders, and he says, I don't know who you are or what you do, but you got 24 hours to get your butt to California. <laughs> that worked out pretty well for a it while. It did, yeah. You ended, up, you ended up going to Vietnam I did not end up going to Vietnam, and, um, and I, had, uh, I had my equipment sent over there. I was shooting for bear archery at the time. And uh, actually did USO shows over there. Wow. Yeah. I opened for guys like Georgie Jessel, you know, which is an old vaudeville guy yeah. and, and other entertainers that would come through and they'd have me do my little thing and then they'd come up and do their thing. So one of the uh, many people that you've coached over the years, besides myself, well, let's talk about successful shooters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only kidding a little bit. Um, when people talk about you, they talk about J-Bars. Right. And the reason is because you basically shaped J-Bars and helped him achieve that dream that all of us have had at one time or another, which is to go to the Olympic Games and win. And, you know, we're going to talk to Jay in the near future about his perspective on that, but mm-hmm. I'd like yours, your perspective on that. What did you see when you started working with, with Jay? Well, I, I knew uh, Jack and Dot, his his parents, and I'd been up there hunting, and of course I'd met Jay then, and he was in junior college, and he was a shooter, and he was a decent shooter, and I watched him shoot a couple of tournaments, and I thought, you know, that, you know, you can just get an idea by watching people. Uh, this kid's got some talent, mm-hmm. right? And um, it wasn't too much later on, and I got a call from Jack, and he says, hey, he said, my son's going to come down to ASU go to college there, would you coach him? I says, that'd be fine. Send him tomorrow. So that's kind of how it all got started. So so Jay's routine back then was to shoot, uh, was it one or two feet a day? Well, you know, he's going to college. Yeah. So he couldn't shoot that much. Right. But, you know. Well, that's when he took the time off. After yeah, that. After, the, after that. You know, you know basically, I, I kind of broke him down to where I needed to have him just so I could beat him, you know, <laughs> and then let him build himself back up. Well, all joking aside, the yeah. technique you used was to analyze what he was doing mm-hmm. and then basically start him over again. Exactly. And it took uh, from the time that we started till the time he got the gold medal, took six years. So you know, when people ask me, you know, how long does it take? Well, about four to six years minimum for a talented shooter who's right. motivated and who made a lot of sacrifices along the way to and, be able to get right. to where he was because when it finally got to the point where we had to train hard you know he had to quit college he had to do nothing but shoot bows and arrows yep. and that's hard to do he was fortunate that he was still able to um, live nearby in mm-hmm. Arizona yeah but I know that there were some months there when sometimes he had to pick between the electricity bill and the phone bill well, you know, and we had a good friend in the in the uh, apartment complex building, so we had a good deal on an apartment for him. Uh, and then Cavalier, we did a lot of piece work where a lot of college kids would come and pick up parts and assemble them. Putting and so plungers and so. together, things right, like that. Right, that kind of stuff, right. 
And we worked it out so most of them could make at least 10 bucks an hour while they're watching TV. I have actually quite a few friends from that era yep. who, uh, yep. who made their uh, lunch money that way. <laughs> so Jay was doing that. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, we'd supplement wherever we could and help him out. And uh, uh, he had help from Easton. And uh, he had help from Hoyt and, you know, other people in the, in the industry, which was really good. So, uh, obviously, they saw the talent also. So Yeah, he'd won a couple of nationals by that point. Oh, he had, yep. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, when Jay and I shot together for, for a long time, we shot a lot of field archery. Correct. I always felt that shooting field archery made you a better target archer. Field archery was always my most fun thing i mean i would rather do that than anything uh it's more challenging it there's more variety to it you know it's uphill it's downhill it teaches you about wind it teaches you about balance it teaches you about so many things that you don't get standing on the target line i hate to put it this way because i know what a challenge it is to shoot target archery at a high level but i can say that i think that it makes it feel like target archery is easier it well a little bit yeah it does Metal game's not quite the same, but the no. uh, the techniques and the uh, the effort for field archery makes you a better target shooter. I think that's my personal opinion. Anyway, and then there's a lot of things that <laughs> there's a lot of stories about what happens on the field course. You know, a lot more stories than what happens on the target line because you've got four guys walking around together, and it just seems like there's always something going on. So, um, you know, one of the things about our podcast is that we don't have a lot of pre-show discussion or notes, so I'm going to ask you something kind of out of the blue. Okay. And, and uh, I'd like to know your personal coaching philosophy as looking back, what we have, where we've been, who's shooting, how they're shooting. What's your personal philosophy as a coach today? I, I guess you could say that... Um I like to see people shoot the bow and arrow uh, in more of a natural uh, way. I like to see the body working properly and not force it to do things that it shouldn't do. So uh, I look at it as there's five basic things, okay? You have balance, which is important. That's very, in whatever sport you're in, you have to have good balance. Uh, form, which there's, that's part of making the body work. All right. We're going to have our physical condition, our mental condition, and probably the most important of all is rhythm and timing. So if you take those five basics and you put the archer in the middle and put those around the edge and look at it, you take any one of them away and you're going to struggle. Yeah. All right. So if you put them all together and you have really good rhythm and timing, you're going to be a winner. And those are fundamentals for just right. about any sport, really. It's true. Any execution sport. Any sport that's done in an upright manner. Like a golf swing. A golf swing. Uh, I don't care if you're running, playing tennis. Uh, you can just go on and on and on. Um, hockey, doesn't matter. So speaking of golf, you've also successfully coached and had your kids be very successful in, in that sport. That's correct. Uh, and you've been a pretty solid golfer yourself. Well, I always enjoyed playing and, you know, got to be fairly decent. But, you know, it's hard to learn that as an older age. But uh, I did get my kids started in it fairly early. And they learned the right way, you know, which is like archery. If you learn the right way, it's a lot easier when you're a kid to move on up. Um, and uh, my daughter ended up playing four years for ASU uh, on a full-ride scholarship, and which is one of the toughest 
uh, women's programs in the country. They were six times national champions. So she was very, very good. And, and ended up working for Callaway before her marriage. Uh, she worked for Anti- Antigua and then Callaway. Yeah. So, yeah, she's uh, been in the golf industry. And uh, uh, she actually used the putter we made to, to win most of the stuff she did. Um, and then uh, my son got into it real heavy. And uh, he still is playing at a very high level. Uh, so Kevin. It, it's always been well there's a lot of similarities between golf and archery that's where i was headed with this that's yes. why i brought it up yeah it's very there, there's a lot of similarities and you know jay plays golf he's playing golf right now by the way he's been shooting all morning and janet his yeah. wife and and they're off at the golf course with your wife right but uh there are so many similarities especially in the short game right correct well in all of it matter of fact when we got done with the games in 88 i bought jay at a set of clubs and got him started in the in the game and you know it was very frustrating for him i mean there were a lot of thrown clubs <laughs> but better to throw a club than a bow i've seen that <laughs> if you, you can't practice with jay bars for many years without seeing a thrown item of some sort yes right i remember one time we were looking in the grass for his tab for about a half hour because he just mm-hmm. furiously threw his tab and then we had to find it <laughs> I, i've also seen uh, a bow standing upright in a stabilizer on a muddy day. Yep. Uh, but, you know, those are things that kind of mysteriously happen. Yeah, exactly. Looking at um, what we have right now in, in our uh, American program, we've mm-hmm. got some very talented shooters. Uh, Brady Ellison keeps coming up to the top. One of the best I've ever seen. I mean, he just is. I mean, very talented young man. I've watched him shoot a lot. And was a great compound shooter before he was a recurve shooter. Very much so. You know, uh, he, he learned the principles and how to shoot an arrow uh, with a compound and was able to pick up a recurve and be able to recreate that, which a lot of guys can't do. You were in Copenhagen at the World Championships. I was. I was there uh, coaching some of the Swiss team members and working for World Archery in the equipment repair facility. And you were coaching the Canadian team. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about what you saw in Copenhagen, just uh, sort of as a, a retrospective. Very tough weather conditions. Very tough. What impressed you the most from what you saw at that event? You know, I watched, like you said, you mentioned the weather. Uh, I watched some people handle the weather and some people not handle the some weather. Some folks rose to the occasion. Right. And, uh, you know, I've had this in, on occasion where uh, we'd have bad weather raining or whatever, and a student would come to me complaining that they're not doing well and so on and so forth. And I'd looked at them and I says, you know, it's raining on everybody. You know, and they come to the realization that, guess what? Everybody's dealing with the same thing. You have a chance to deal with it as a positive or you have a chance to deal with it as a negative. I choose the positive. So that, probably I saw that more than anything else, is how people dealt with it. And then if you go on from there, uh, the organization was excellent. The committee was excellent. And it was perfect weather for the finals. And they just do do such a wonderful job of putting that together. It was unbelievable. Not your first world championships, of course. No, no. So, you know, looking at things over the last, say, 40 years as an active coach, Mm -hmm. what do you think, uh, where are we headed with our sport? What do you, what do you see in our future from the standpoint of the Olympic round now and the set play? How do you feel about that whole thing? Well, you know, that kind of originally started because, you know, when you shot strict feet as 144 arrows and two of those for your Olympic medal, 
um, even though we had spectators, it was kind of like watching grass grow. I mean, the, you, unless you actually knew exactly what was going on, it wasn't any fun. And uh, Jim Easton was smart enough to say, hey, you know, we need to make this a little more fun. Otherwise, we're not going to keep it in the Olympics. It's just that simple. So he, he and some other people come up with the Grand Fita, which was the forerunner to what we have now. Uh, and that was contested in 88. In 92, they went away from that into, I think it was an 18-arrow shoot-off and that type of thing. 18 and it, arrows and then 12 arrows in the finals. Right, and it was a, 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 like a match play thing when you, you lose, you're out. And they, they broke it into certain segments and, you know, and, and it was kind of fun. And they kept that up until, what, about four years ago when they started the set play? And now they've gone to the set play. Yeah, well, London was the first games where we had set system. Right. So in every time they've made a change, archery has become a more popular event to watch. Do they get the, the best archer that day? I don't know. But sometimes. They get, sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. What they get is something that's fun to watch. And I think last year in 2012 or whatever it was, archery was the most watched online sport. Yeah, that's... Uh, and they became a core sport because of that. That's right. And yeah. I think that Jim uh, deserves full credit for that effort. Oh, yeah. He and his his committee were able to pull this off. And now I think World Archery learned from that. And then they had the World Cups. What do you think we need to do with um, the future of Compound? What do you see as as the possibilities there? Because you know, I, I don't know if the 50-meter round is the way to go or not. And I know some, some compound shooters don't feel that way either. You know, I, I, I don't think the 50-meter round is the way to go. That's just my personal opinion. Um, I, I think it's a little more boring than it needs to be. Uh, it's, it's less fun than watching what goes on in the recurves. Um, how to change it? I don't know. Maybe it needs to be a field round. Real Wild told me yesterday he'd rather be shooting 60 meters. At the same target. At the same target, which I think would be really bad for club competitors. It would be, but then again, this is the Olympics. You know, we have to think about what's exciting, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know why they don't do the set system. Well, they needed differentiation. That's the explanation, mm -hmm. you know. So it needed to be different than recurve. And because compound is a precision sport, I guess the argument goes that uh, you want to be able to go off straight score. Because it's possible in the set system, as you know, that uh, you could have somebody with a higher raw score get beaten. That's true. That's, you can. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, some people that recently are not real happy about that, but it's been happening all along ever since they started the set system. Yeah. So. And, you know, that's absolutely true, both of the set system and also occasionally you'd, uh, you know, you'd see somebody in the past, uh, maybe at a lower ranking level, come out and just blow the doors off somebody? Well, realistically... With 18 it, arrows it, or 12. Realistically, it could have and probably still did have happened when we had the Grand Fita because we started from zero. After every, every, every pass. pass. Yeah, right. every pass. So somebody could have shot very poorly and then all of a sudden the last pass, come on and beat everybody. Yeah, it's a very different mental game than the cumulative 144 arrows that you'd get before that. 
Very much so. And that's uh, why we saw changing of the guard to some degree. It is. And you see this, this, some of the uh, archers that handle that uh, set system, the match play, uh, the one-on-one, they handle it so much better. Uh, and that's why they win. Some people thrive on that. Right. You'll see in every one of these World Cups, Olympics, all of them, World Championships, you see some guy that, you know, qualified 54th, and all of a sudden you see him in the semifinals. It just went through everybody. And it's like, hmm, wow. But he understands how to do match play. I'm going to change up the subject slightly and talk about bow hunting a little bit. Even though it's a Target Archery podcast, I can't ignore bow hunting when I'm talking to you because bow hunting is as much a part of your life as uh, Target Archery has been. That's true. Um, I've always enjoyed bow hunting. I mean, that's kind of how I started, you know. I can't tell you how many birds and doves and rabbits and all sorts of stuff I shot before I even knew what a Target bow was. Um, And you learn how to shoot instinctive, you know, no sights, no idea, just point and shoot. And um, because of that, uh, you know, I, I end up being pretty successful as a bow hunter. Not because I was a good, good hunter, but because I usually could hit what I was aiming at. Uh, in my case, I hunted with a recurve up until about six, seven years ago. Um, and everything I shot was with a recurve. <laughs> and, and, uh, Including some just absolutely enormous elk. Oh, I've shot a lot of elk, a lot of deer, uh, you know, antelope, I mean, bear, I mean, I don't know how many animals. Again, like I said, I never considered myself a great hunter. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there, but much could, better hunters than I am. But if you could see it, you could hit it. Usually, I had to figure out how I could hit it. And uh, we did up, I ended up doing a lot of um, uh, shows, TV shows, films for the Arizona Game of Fish. Not only instructional stuff, but uh, bow hunting stuff. Uh, we did one show that was kind of interesting, shooting pheasants. And like on the fly. On with the fly. Flu, okay. flu arrows. Yeah. And the, the, uh, we started out by going to the Phoenix Trap and Skeet Club, and I shot trap. And I was able to shoot seven out of 25. With a bow. With a bow. And uh, judo points. I feel pretty good if I get seven out of twenty-five with a shotgun. <laughs> but uh, and then we went and shot uh, pheasants the next day. And um, the problem with the pheasants is they were so much slower than the trap. <laughs> it so took you, me a while to get onto them. <laughs> giving them too much lead. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, when you're you're standing on the sixteen-yard line on the trap, and that bird leaves the house, it's leaving at forty-five miles an hour, and by the time the arrow gets to it, it's fifty yards out there. And it's, what, three and a half inches, four inches in diameter? And moving. Yeah, fast. Yeah. They're probably going 40, 50 miles an hour by the time they get that. Yeah, so. So that's pretty remarkable. You know, I I think that um, getting back to roving a little bit, you know, whenever I would, when I was a resident athlete in San Diego, and I'd get kind of, you know, maybe shot too much and not getting my head in the right place, uh, we would take a, milk jug you know one of those gallon polyethylene milk jugs and tape shut the mouth and just go chasing that thing around the field with blunts oh yeah <clears throat> that you know that kind of stump shooting just kind of have fun oh yeah and you don't see a lot of that uh anymore i mean we used to have a lot of that in our hunting camps uh you know during the noon time when nobody was hunting we'd say hey get your bow and let's go out in the field here and have a little contest and everybody take one arrow and whoever finished with an arrow won because everything you'd be shooting at anything out there, and if you hit the, you know, you get to pick next target, and sometimes they'd bust their arrow. Well, you're out. 
start over, you know. But those are the fun times. Some of the folks who are listening to this right now might wonder, um, they may have a kid who has an Olympic dream, you know, might aspire to getting to the games, might aspire to winning the games. And I I recognize those are two different dreams, by the way. There are. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about briefly your philosophy on how best to fulfill that dream. What, What do you think needs to be done? Let's say you have a parent and you're giving them advice. What what are you going to tell them? Well, I guess the first thing is I would find somebody that is a very qualified coach to start with. Um, yeah, you can do the little beginner classes and things like that um, and find out if there's interest and whether they want to stick with it. But you cannot beat good coaching. And if you start them out right and start them out with good equipment, uh, they progress so much faster. It makes it a lot less painful when somebody your caliber has to get a hold of them and break down whatever issues they've got with their form. Yeah, too. it's hard. It's easier to start them out right than fix what's wrong. It, it, it's always, I don't care what sport you're in. So realistically, the amount of time required and the amount of effort required really hasn't changed. There are no flashes in the pan that are successful. No. Some people make the team, right. but to win... That's another story. That's true. It always It's all time uh, and effort, and I don't care what sport you're in. Um, and at the top level, uh, the Olympic level or the top compound level, it doesn't matter. It's the same as the top level in golf or tennis or any other sport. Uh, You've put a lot of hours in to get there. Yesterday, as we record this, uh, Ojin Hyuk, a friend right. of mine, and, and you know O. Mm, yep. He uh, set a new world record. I know. With uh, 58, 59, 59, 59, 59, 59, 59, 70 meters. That's pretty tough. That's incredible and hard to visualize for me. I mean, you know, visualization is an important part of preparing for, for competition. And I, I am having trouble visualizing what it takes to get 354 on your scorecard. But there is a technique. It's one arrow at a time, right? That's true. And he wasn't visualizing the whole total score. You know, he was visualizing every shot. Exactly. And he was performing every shot. He was totally disassociated from the target. He was staying on the target line and shooting his arrows. And exactly that advice is what's gotten me through some, some important competitions. Stay on the line, focus, rhythm, and timing through the shot. Absolutely. It works every time. Well. Every time I apply it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the hard part. Yeah. So, Dick, I appreciate the time that you've spent with us today here on the uh, Easton Podcast. Um, Just to give a shout-out to Diane and and your family for for being up here. Will do. And uh, Mm -hmm. really appreciate the the time you've taken. I know that uh, I can call you up sometime and we can do this again. Or I can come see you in Arizona or you'll be back up here and we'll we'll do this again. I'm I'm sure we will. One of the things that uh, we've got is a uh, email address for listener questions, podcast at eastontp.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at Easton, E-A-S-T-O-N-T-P for Easton Technical Products.com. So if you've got a question for Dick Tone, email it to podcast at eastontp.com. I will either email or Skype Dick, and we'll get that uh, question answered for you on the next uh, next podcast. You bet. Not a problem. Appreciate your time today. All right. Thank you, Jim. And uh, for all your years of coaching. Huh. Thank you. It's been fun. Yes, indeed. Well, that wraps up another Easton podcast with myself, George Tekmichov, and our special guest, Dick Tone, here at the Easton Archery Center in Salt Lake City. 
Our next episode will be uh, another technical podcast coming up in the next few weeks. We're going to have uh, Olympic gold medalist Jay Bars. We'll be talking to Dean Alberga of World Archery. We'll be talking to Tom Dillon from World Archery. And we'll be talking to organizers of both the Rio Olympic Games and Tokyo 2020. So for myself, George Tekmachev, and our guest Dick Tone, thank you for joining us. Have a good day.